welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to my podcast, Health by Heather Hirsch, or if you're watching on YouTube. Today, I have my good friend with me, Jill Kraft. She's board certified in OBGYN, and she is the associate director for the Center of Vulval Vaginal Disorders in Washington, D.C. I'll tell you all about how you can get an appointment with her after or towards the end of this show, because you probably are going to want to. And you can also follow her on Instagram at JillCraftMD, and that's at J-I-L-L-K-R-A-P-F-M-D. So today we're going to be talking about sexual health at midlife and menopause when we combine that with the physiologic changes that happen at menopause, um, which we call genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is a big word. So since it's a mouthful, we'll be calling it GSM for here. So my very first question for you off the bat is when women have these types of sexual health problems related to GSM at menopause and midlife, what are they coming to you saying or what are the complaints that you're hearing? You know, how do people know that they have this? That's a great question. So main things that women come to me uh, are vaginal and vulvar dryness. Um, They often have burning or irritation. They can have decreased natural lubrication. um, So that can be the component perhaps decreased arousal. Um, They can have pain, pain with intercourse. And that's a big one. Um, That's usually what brings them to my doorstep. Once it starts affecting their intimate relationships and they're having pain, um, that's kind of the breaking point. And then they they come in. Another thing is tearing. Sometimes they can have tearing or a little bit of bleeding, which alarms them. Um, But all of these symptoms are really you know, important. And oftentimes I see women, they wait a long time before they actually come in and many different reasons for that. I'm sure we'll get into all of those. What changes in at menopause or what changes in our bodies to all of a sudden have these new symptoms? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, before we get to that, the other thing, even though it's a lot of the vaginal symptoms that bring them to me because I'm a gynecologist, I should also mention that there's a lot of urinary symptoms that are associated. And oftentimes women don't put it together immediately. Um, they'll come in for the vaginal dryness or the, or the vaginal discomfort. Um, but then when you start telling them about what's going on and how it works, then they'll say, oh wait, I do wake up to go to the bathroom three times a night. And I do have a sense of urgency uh, when I, you know, when I have to urinate or I do, you know, go to the bathroom many, many, many times a day. And so we start to put it together. So when we think about this process, we need to think about the tissue of the vagina, the vulva and bring the vulva into the discussion too, which is that external genitalia as well as the entrance to the vagina called the vestibule. And then we also need to think about the bladder as well as the urethra, which is that little tube where the urine exits the body and it exits right in the the top part of the vestibule, which is part of the vulva. 
So a lot of these changes occur because there's a dramatic decrease in estrogen associated with menopause. And this starts way before menopause. Um, it starts an average of 10 years, even more. Um, our levels of uh, estrogen really start to decline uh, in, you know, even 20s, 30s, <laughs> into 40s, and then we see a massive decline in our early 50s. And so studies that have actually shown a 95% decline from premenopause to postmenopause. I mean, that's impressive. And, and, and a lot of the symptoms that we see are intrinsically linked to this. And does this explain why this consolation of thinking about the bladder and as well as the vulva and the vagina, it sort of explain why we call it genitourinary syndrome of menopause? I believe we used to call it vaginal atrophy. We did. Uh, and then the more inclusive term that we were using back then was vulvovaginal atrophy, just trying to bring that vulva in too, um, which is a general theme in my education. On yes, my don't Instagram. forget the vulva, right? <laughs> Please don't forget the vulva um, and call it the right thing. It's not the vagina. The vagina. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, but there needs to be a lot of awareness that that the urinary system is very much included in this too. When we're developing as babies, as fetuses, um, these tissues are coming from the same place. And so they have the same receptors and they respond the same way to hormones. And so we really need to kind of lump them together when we're thinking about the effects of decreased estrogen and the effects of perimenopause and menopause on all of these tissues. And then that helps us understand the treatment process as well as how, what symptoms we're treating and all of the symptoms we're treating. So you're right. Um, so genitourinary syndrome of menopause is the term that they came out with in 2014. Um, and that basically replaced the uh, term vulvovaginal atrophy. And there's a number of reasons. I mean, the biggest reason is to include the urinary system. I think that that makes sense, but also the older term atrophy was a little off-putting. Um, no one really wants to think that their vagina is falling off, right? It sounds awful. It sounds like you're shriveling up. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's not the most loveliest of terms. No, it's really not. And it's, um, you know, even with our coding, the way that we code visits, they haven't changed it to genitourinary syndrome and menopause yet. Um, and so the coding will st still say vulvovaginal atrophy. That's the code that's linked. And so it is important for people to know that history. So when they see their paperwork, they understand. But um, it's very a very descriptive term. It's just not a very nice term. Um, but, you know, the, there are some things about genitourinary syndrome of menopause that that are also not optimal as a term um, because like it, what? Well, I'll tell you. So, so first of all, it really only includes menopause um, it, in the term, and we know that these levels decrease well before menopause, and so we really exclude our perimenopausal ladies, and so they think, oh, this shouldn't be happening to me in my forties. Well, guess what? It does, and we can tr we can start to treat you. Um, and yes, and I know that you agree with that. Yeah, how often have you heard, you know, you, you're too young for vaginal estrogen or you, you can't use postmenopausal hormones if you're not postmenopausal? And how, how damaging are those myths and misconceptions? 
It's so hurtful because it's really, you know, we really need to think of the physiology here. We need to think of what's happening. It's not necessarily the age of the person, it's their hormonal status. Um, if someone has had an oophorectomy, meaning they've had their ovaries removed, they could be, they could be young. They're probably younger. And that has a very pronounced change on your hormones. That, drops your estrogen levels. And so, you know, it's, it's important to, it's important to consider different patient presentations and different populations and, and all women who are going through these types of symptoms and really give them validity and give, make them feel like, yes, you are a part of this too. And there's help for you. I think that's essential. And the other part that this misses is there's atrophy or thinning and dryness um, and even urinary symptoms that can be related to decreases in hormones for other reasons. For example, there are certain medications that can decrease levels of estrogen and androgens like testosterone. And one of the biggest ones that I see is spironolactone, which is a very common anti-androgen medication that's used for acne, um, and that can be very anti-androgenic, meaning it works against testosterone. And so women can have some vulvar symptoms related to a medication they're taking. Another group of medications that can act in this way are birth control pills. Um, these are combined oral birth control pills that have the estrogen as well as the progesterone in, a, in them. Um, but there's only a small subset of women that really react in this way, but when they do, they often go years not really knowing why they're having pain with sex, why they have dryness and decreased lubrication. And it's a shock to them that, hey, it could be the medication that you're taking that's actually altering your hormones that's causing these changes. And all we have to do is really take you off of those hormones give you a, a better option for you, um, meaning a progesterone-only birth control option, like an IUD implant or even a progesterone-only pill, and really replenish the hormone to that area, and you get better. Um, so I think that there's other uh, conditions that mimic this that unfortunately really aren't included in that term GSM. Mm -hmm. So, so far I'm really getting the message, or it's important, I think, that everyone gets the message from Dr. Kraft that this can affect, even though we're talking about it in, 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 in menopause, terms, but that these symptoms and the changes in physiology and hormones can affect you across your reproductive spectrum. And I think that is really important because it's damaging when you get these messages that something else must be wrong with you or something just completely mysterious must be wrong with you. And it, it may be something that you're doing. So it's kind of wondering as you were talking, like when you see patients day in and day out, how does this affect like their real life? How does this affect them in real everyday life? It's very impactful. Uh, when a woman has daily burning and irritation, it affects how long she's able to sit. Um, we're, a lot of women are, are working from home right now. They're in front of the computer all day. They're not taking the natural breaks that they do during the course of the day. They're not going to get lunch with their colleagues. You know, there's, um, we're just sitting at our desks all day. And, and so there can be a lot of, you know, discomfort and burning, irritation um, that occurs due to, due to lack of hormone or dryness. Um, this can flare up the pelvic floor muscles, which can cause added symptoms of burning. And especially when you don't know why or what's going on, um, that, can be, that can be really anxiety provoking. And then the anxiety of that, we call that 
teen-related anxiety, and it's more pronounced in women who have generalized anxiety, um, this pain-related anxiety causes us to be tense and tense up. And then that tenses up our pelvic floor muscles even more. more. Um, and around and around it goes. And I often see women who have a hormonal component that kind of started things and then the guarding of the pelvic floor muscles that are in response. And then it becomes this big pain cycle and anxiety loops itself in. Um, so I see that very, very often. Uh, so that's one way in your normal daily life that it can really affect things. Another way is intimate in intimate relationships. So when there's dryness and pain with insertion, with sex, with intercourse, then it can really affect how you feel about yourself as a woman. It can affect how you um, interact with your partner, how your partner views you know, your intimacy. I, I see all the time women and their partners, they're scared. They're scared to be intimate together. Um, and so they avoid it, right? If something hurts, the first behavioral measure, and the studies have shown this too, is avoidance. And so you get into a routine where you're not intimate in any way, and there's more ways to be intimate than just intercourse. Um, so we really see this kind of affect all aspects of someone's life. And women will often tell you, they say, I, I'm not able to sleep. I am constantly worried about this. I don't feel like I'm myself. Um, and it really, um, it affects every part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I, I wonder how, too, that must affect your desire, because, you're right, I always kind of think, well, certainly in, in survival mode or subconsciously, you're not going to have much desire left if it's painful, and I always kind of, I don't know what you think of this, but more pain causes more pain, kind of that vicious cycle. I see that all of the time. And I often have women come and they say, I have no desire. And I have to ask, well, what does it hurt? Um, do you have pain? Because if they have pain, of course they have no desire. Uh, no one really wants to do something that's that hurts and that's going to cause trauma and um, and 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 issues. You know, no one really wants to be in that situation. And so the important thing is to identify a diagnosis, um, to figure out what the pain condition is, and then to treat the pain condition. And then sometimes desire comes back and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, there's ways, there, there's ways that we can treat that also. But we really have to address the arousal component, the desire, I'm sorry, the arousal component, the pain component first, before yeah. we get to uh, the desire component. Yeah, agree. So I want to go back to something you said earlier. We were talking about first about the changes that estrogen has, but what are the changes that testosterone has in terms of the vulva and the vagina, the clitoris, um, or maybe even the bladder, I'm not sure. Um, and what happens to our testosterone as, as we go through our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s? Yes, so testosterone decreases along with estrogen, uh, and so they're in the same pathway. And so the important thing to know about testosterone, or at least what we're discovering now, is that there's certain areas of the anatomy that are especially responsive to androgens. Uh, testosterone is an example of an androgen. And so the gland openings that are located in the vestibule, which are that entrance area to the vagina, the vaginal opening if you will, those glands are 
very, very sensitive to androgens. Androgens are like the gasoline of the car. It's like the fuel that these glands need to produce lubrication and to keep that tissue that surrounds the glands healthy and not irritated. And so if those glands are lacking the basic basic building block of androgen, then they become dry, inflamed, the tissue becomes irritated, and then anything that touches that area is going to hurt. And so those glands are located really all around that vaginal opening. And so women will often say that they have pain with insertion uh, of anything, whether it be a tampon or a toy or a speculum or a penis. And so whenever that is occurring, you wanna figure out, is it a hormone issue related to those glands? Um, is it a muscle issue and so forth? Um, so androgens play the largest role at the level of the vaginal opening. Ah, so that's why you're anti-androgens, like your spironolactone or aldactone or your birth control pills, which lower your free testosterone, really can cause some, some big symptoms there. And it's very obvious on exam when you know what you're looking for. We do something called a Q-tip test where we take a wet Q-tip, it's just as easy as it sounds, mm -hmm. and we touch different areas on the vulva, including the vestibule, which is that more internal area. And you can actually pinpoint when you touch those gland openings, number one, you can see, especially with a vulvoscope or under magnification, you can see that they're inflamed and often red right at that area. And then when you touch that area with a Q-tip, patients have sharp stabbing pain. It, they often say, it feels like you're touching me with the wooden sharp end of the Q-tip or the, a needle. Um, it doesn't feel like a cotton swab. And, so, and that is all the action of lack of androgen as well as lack of estrogen, but mainly androgens at, the, at, at that tissue level. Wow. So this leads right into um, continuing to talk about how do you diagnose GSM? Is it clinical? Is there exams? You know, what should patients know for how they can be best diagnosed? So yes, GSM is a clinical diagnosis. You do not need labs um, to determine if someone has a genitourinary syndrome and menopause. Um, it's, it's based on the it's based on your clinical observation. And so what are the things that I'm looking for? So I'm looking for paleness of the area. I'm looking for thinness of the tissue. Um, we see lack of the natural folds that normally occur inside the vagina. Um, so the best way that to think about it is to bring it back to the why. So when we think about why this is occurring, it really helps us visualize exactly what the tissue looks like, especially on the inside. And so the idea here is when you have decreased estrogen, then you're having basically, um, you're basically having lack of collagen formation, less blood flow to the area. So the area is becoming thinner. Um, and, and when that tissue becomes very thin, then it can tear more easily. It can become infected more easily. So these are the things that we're looking for. Yeah. Well, let's get into some ways that we can treat this. And then after that, I kind of want to talk about, um, you know, the elephant in the room, which is why don't women get treated enough or what are the barriers? So before we get there, let's go back to, you know, how, you know, let's, let's um, provide the light at the end of the tunnel. What are some of the treatment options 
starting with some of the more commonly known ones, um, like over-the-counters, vaginal estrogen, and then maybe some newer ones you can tell us about. So the great news here is that there are a ton of treatments for GSM. I mean, there's only, I know, it's wonderful. There's it's almost like there's so many treatments that it gets a little overwhelming um, to have so many choices. Um, but I think it's great to have choices. And so really the first line treatments are going to be your non-hormonal options. Um, so these are things like so there's two basic categories. You have your lubricants that you use basically on demand. So these would be used with intercourse. And then you have your vulvar and vaginal moisturizers. And the way that I think about it is your lubricants, you are on demand, whereas your moisturizers are maintenance. So it's kind of like when you get out of the shower and you put lotion on your skin, right? Um, so it's a moisturizer for the vagina. And don't forget about the vulva. That's going to be the general theme here. There's moisturizers for the vulva too. And some products you can use as both a moisturizer and a lubricant. Some products you can only, you only want to use as a lubricant. And then there's other products that you really only want to use as a moisturizer. So again, tons of options. And a lot of these are, all of these are commercially available. Um, and so, so as far as, as far as different things, you have, um, you have, basically uh, you have, and then there's some alternative therapies that have been looked at too. Um, so things like vitamin E suppositories, um, some people, there's been some studies looking at uh, oral vitamin D um, that has, you know, a little bit of literature on it. Um, and so there's, there's many different options. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite go-to lubricant and your favorite go-to moisturizer? Good question. So it really depends on what's going to work for somebody. Um, I generally recommend both a, uh, a moisturizer as well as a lubricant um, for intercourse for, for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I like to start with water-based lubricants because I find that they're often less irritating as long as you go with a trusted product. Some of my favorite water-based lubricants are Good Clean Love, mm -hmm. uh, Slippery Stuff, mm -hmm. Yes, with an exclamation point. Uh, so these are some of my favorites, but there's also others that, that, are, that are excellent. And then, you know, there's also, so in addition, there's silicone-based lubricants, and then there's water-based lubricants. I'm sorry, there's uh, oil-based lubricants. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about oil-based, there's natural oil uh, mm -hmm. lubricants too. My go-to natural oil lubricant is coconut oil mm -hmm. um, because coconut oil has some antibacterial and anti-yeast qualities. So, I didn't know that. Yes, I have cool. a post on that. That's and, so cool. And so I find that that's helpful as long as you uh, are not allergic to coconut or irritated by coconut. Also, coconut tastes good, so that's good. The only downside about coconut oil is it can stain uh, mm -hmm. clothing and sheets, so just to be aware of that part. But my general go-to is to start with water-based, and then if you're finding that the water-based is running out faster, you have to reapply often, then you want to start looking at uh, an oil-based lubricant. Um, some of these lubricants are not, they don't uh, mix well with condoms, but for my menopausal women, that's usually not an issue. Uh, so we can kind of have more options in that realm. Great. So when do you go from over-the-counters to the next step, which I'm assuming might be vaginal estrogen? 
Yes. So by the time women see me, honestly, they've probably tried a lot of the over-the-counter products. Um, and so I do usually go straight to vaginal estrogen because it works <laughs> and it works very well. And we have many, many, many studies that show that. And we also have many, many studies to show that it's very safe. So it's safe and effective. So of course I'm going to use it. And then I'll use vulvar moisturizers or vaginal moisturizers as supplements, depending on what's going on um, with the patient. Um, but generally our low dose uh, vaginal estrogens, um, we have options there too. Um, there's cream, there's, there's cream forms. There are pills that go inside the vagina that can be placed with an applicator or a finger. Um, and there's also a ring, uh, which, is, which is very convenient. So um, if someone has a lot of symptoms and they're coming to see me with absolutely no previous treatment and they have a lot of atrophy, if you will. Um, I usually start with a cream because it tends to be less irritating than say inserting a, a tablet or a ring in that situation. And then once they improve, I'll transition them to either a tablet or a ring because I find that it's less messy. Yeah. Since we both know and agree that vaginal estrogens are so safe and effective, yet there is still some barriers to using them. Um, what do you think those, what do you see those barriers to be in clinical practice? So I think the biggest barrier, at least in the U.S., is that there is a big, scary black box warning on these medications. And this, for low-dose vaginal estrogens, this is really not based upon the available safety data that we have on these medications. And so this makes it super challenging for not only providers to counsel patients and then have the patient pick up the prescription and see this and completely freak out, rightfully so. Um, but it's, you know, it's really challenging for patients too, because it adds fear where there really does not need to be fear. And so I think the first thing to note is that low-dose vaginal estrogen products um, have limited systemic absorption, meaning there's less estrogen floating through the bloodstream. So they're different than hormone replacement therapy um, in that way. So these products are not going to treat your hot flashes and night sweats um, in general. And so and so that's the biggest thing. The other thing that can be a little confusing is that the low-dose estrogen ring, is, the estrin is different than femring which is a um, an hormone replacement therapy vaginal ring, but gives doses of estrogen for hot flashes and night sweats. And so um, I think that there's just some little parts about it that make it a little bit confusing because we tend to lump a lot of these products together as hormones or hormone replacement therapy. Whereas when we're talking about low dose vaginal estrogen, we're really talking about something on its own that is very safe, very locally effective. Yeah, I know the black box warning is so discouraging. And even when I tell my patients and warn them about it, you still, I still feel really silly. Um, I know there's a black box warning, but just ignore it. It's based on uh, systemic hormone therapy. And they still give you this strange look like, well, I still don't understand why it's there and neither do we. So. Vaginal estrogen is a really nice option for the majority of patients once they've tried the over-the-counters. What are some of the other newer things on the market or fancier things or maybe more targeted things that you get to do um, in your specialized center? 
you know, these are the other things that are on the market um, are really kind of niche in that, you know, there's a pill that helps with vaginal dryness. Um, and then there's also intravaginal DHEA, which is actually very exciting. So um, my go-to is still good old vaginal estrogen, especially a cream. Um, that's my go-to. And so I'm not into the latest and the greatest because, you know, I think that good old vaginal estrogen works and it works really, really well. Um, I also have patients apply um, some topical cream to the entrance of the vagina too, to that vestibule area. And i in my practice, I do compound that with testosterone, which is not FDA approved for women in the U.S. yet. Um, and nothing's on the horizon, I should add. But we know that it, it is safe. There's safety data looking at testosterone patches, which are much higher doses of testosterone. Um, and the, the safety data for the as long as the studies, which are five years, have all been completely fine. And so um, I, I personally do the compounded testosterone with the, with the same dose of the estrogen uh, that's in the cream applied to the entrance area. And then I'll do a uh, vaginal estrogen, either tablet um, or a cream inside the vagina twice a week. Nice. So, but as far as the other things that are out there, it's important to know one of them is a pill. I don't often prescribe that. Um, it's called aspemaphine. I think that it's good for women who may have arthritis that are unable to apply a vaginal product or maybe don't feel comfortable applying a vaginal product and they would rather take a daily pill for whatever reason. I can see that as a specific patient who would benefit from something like that. But otherwise, it's not my go to at all. And then the other product I actually am pretty excited about, which is vaginal DHEA or prosterone. And that product is, is exciting because um, it basically uh, is a androgenic product that gets turned into estrogen at the level of the vaginal wall. And so we do see some of, uh, some of the drip down effect onto the vestibule. And because it has some androgenic properties, it does actually really help some of the pain that women have with those gland openings that I was talking about earlier. Um, and so it is an FDA approved medication if you didn't feel comfortable um, doing a testosterone preparation at the vaginal opening, then your vaginal DHEA would be a good FDA approved option. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I use vaginal DHEA often as well. And um, it, that's probably my experience in sort of the pseudo testosterone or the androgen component. Um, but it'd be more interesting for me as well to use more of the local testosterone um, because we hear so commonly um, once, even once they use vaginal estrogen, that once, you know, deep penetration isn't so bad, but it's just the insertion that still really hurts. And so I'm wondering if that's maybe where some testosterone application could be helpful. I think that that's the part that we're missing. It's the missing link. And I see that quite often where the vagina, you know, looks completely normal and healthy and the deep penetration pain is resolved, but there's still that discomfort with insertion and there's still 
thinness when you look and signs of menopause when you look um, at the vaginal opening, that vestibule area. So I wish that there was a uh, FDA approved option for that. Um, but right now um, we basically just treat uh, with what we know on how the body works. Mm-hmm. I love it. Tell us a little bit. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time on this, but tell us a little bit about when um, you think is the best time to use like vaginal lasers or, and what's the difference between that and vaginal rejuvenation? Great questions. So these are all energy-based therapy options, um, mainly the CO2 laser. The thing about that is it was initially marketed towards physicians and patients um, for the treatment of many different things under the names of vaginal rejuvenation, uh, even for atrophy. But we really don't have enough data uh, to determine if it's safe uh, or effective. And in the US, these devices have really not been cleared or approved by the FDA for the purpose of GSM. In fact, in in the summer of 2018, the FDA issued a safety warning about the risks of these treatments because there were certain women who were having side effects like vaginal burns and scarring and increased pain with intercourse. And so, the American urologic, uh, uh, oh, sorry, the American Urogynecologic Society, AUGS, actually put out a statement that year um, saying that these treatments show progress, a promise, but we don't really know the long-term outcomes of them. So there's a lot of studies that have been, that have been done recently and are actually in the works right now, um, looking at the um, looking at the efficacy and safety for GSM and the studies are overall positive. So maybe in the future, this can be a better option. But I think that the way that it was rolled out with not a lot of clinical evidence behind it um, makes it certainly not a first line up um, first, not uh, certainly not a first line treatment. Yeah, exactly. Um, vaginal estrogen is so much more effective, so much cheaper, and we know it's efficacious. So Exactly. When we have a product that has so much safety data behind it, so much data saying that it works, and it's not very expensive at all, why would we not want to use that? It's just, it seems like common sense. I mean, there's certain populations that would be very promising for non-hormonal options. And so that's why we definitely need more research for these energy-based and non-hormonal treatment options. Um, But for now, uh, you want to stick with what works and what we know is safe. Yeah. All right. So getting into like our last questions here, why is it that women get undertreated, misdiagnosed, mistreated, or failed to just even uh, realize that this is something that uh, can be treated and is bothering their lives? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that we don't talk about it. And also that we don't call things what they are. And so I think that I've seen in my practice a generational shift that is occurring. um, Whereas my women who are in their 60s and 70s, even 50s, um, they'll come and say, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, or I've never looked there, um, or I don't, you know, I I really don't feel comfortable with all of this. Um, Whereas I have my patients in their 20s who are on birth control for like six months and something's going wrong and they're like, they come and they're like, 
fix me. There's something wrong. I need it fixed right now. And so, you know, the, the generations that are coming up are, they, first of all, they're calling things what they are. They're saying vulva, they're saying vagina, they're knowing the terms and how to communicate with their partners and with their doctors. And also they um, are embracing their, you know, the, their sexuality and they feel comfortable. And there's a lot of information out there with social media and with the internet. So they can figure out when things are not really going right. And then they seek help immediately because in their mind, if something's not going right, they want to fix it because that's, that's what you need to do. Whereas my, my women who are of an older generation, they just kind of grin and bear it. Um, they just, they just struggle with it and they don't want to tell anybody. And, and I applaud them when they come to my office and I can see a weight lift off their shoulders when I say, this is what we do every day. This is why you're here. Um, you know, we're going to make every, you know, we're going to get you back in working order. And so I think that it's really, I think it's really important that we take any shame away from this. Um, this is, these are physiologic processes. It's not your fault yeah. that your hormone levels are going down. This is just what happens. Um, yeah. Dr. Goldstein often says that that um, evolution does not care about the sex life of the postmenopausal woman, and I I have to you know I have to agree. But you know it doesn't mean there aren't things that we can do about it, and we can do a lot about it. Yeah, exactly. I I know I couldn't agree more. I often say, you know, in the cave days we probably died at childbirth or long before menopause. And so when men make more estrogen than women do at a certain point, you know, the balance is sort of tipped in, 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 not in our favor. And I think we live in a society where we're constantly getting the messages that we're doing something wrong or we didn't do something right. Or, you know, ageist messages, like there's nothing you can do about it and you're just supposed to be that way. And that's just how it is. So I, I, I love hearing different perspectives and hearing what you see and sort of seeing there's a lot of things we agree on. Well, thank you so much for a wonderful, frank and open conversation about um, vaginal changes, vulval changes, how that can affect premenopausal, perimenopausal, postmenopausal women, medications that can cause these, how to examine, how to diagnose, and how to treat. Wow, we covered a ton um, all in, in, a, in a short little time span here. So thank you, Jill, so much. If you want to see Dr. Kraft, I want you to head over to their website because you can schedule through them or at there, and it's www.cvvd.org. And definitely follow Jill on Instagram because she is definitely the only one on Instagram posting about all of this stuff on a consistent basis and keeping it evidence-based and factual. So she's at Jill Kraft, K-R-A-P-F-M-D. And we thank you guys so much for listening into this episode. Please give it a like and leave a comment below if you have any other questions. Uh, thanks, Jill, so much. I'm so lucky that I just get to have my friends on as guests all the time. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. All right, guys. Thanks again for listening in and we'll see you next time. Bye.